It's Monday, November 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another week has gone by, and President Trump continues to fight the outcome of the election, despite loss after loss in court. Even though his campaign doesn't have any solid evidence of fraud, he's continuing to claim the election was stolen. He's fighting with Republican governors, and he's thinking of what he's going to do post-presidency. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden will be making some cabinet picks this week. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, it looks like people are rushing to the toilet paper aisle again. We are seeing cases of coronavirus rise, and with it, new lockdowns in certain states. The next logical thing to do is stock up on toilet paper, obviously. And while we are seeing some empty shelves already, supply chain experts say that it won't be the same this time. Mark Hay, contributor to The Daily Beast, joins us for how stores are better prepared for toilet paper panic buying. Finally, for all those parents with kids doing remote learning this year, pay attention to your children's grades. In some cases, the auto-grading software used to grade quizzes and schoolwork are getting it wrong. If a student's answers don't match exactly what's in the teacher's answer guide, it can be marked wrong, even if it's just a capitalization discrepancy. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how these auto-grading systems are causing some headaches. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Instead of going to a high degree of care to allow inspections of the mail-in ballots, there was no inspection of a single mail-in ballot. Those mail-in ballots could have been for anybody. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, another week has gone by, and President Trump has still not conceded. Um, he's still in the courts trying to, you know, do his best with legal challenges, but they're mostly failing. The latest one, it was a big loss in Pennsylvania where the U.S. District Judge uh, Matthew Brand said that they were just using strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations. I mean, they really haven't been getting any wins, significant wins in court. That's right. The suit in Pennsylvania, the judge dismissed it with prejudice, which means that it would be almost inappropriate for them to try to refile, saying that not only did he think that they were wrong, that they had just acted outside the norms of, of the court system and trying to seek some type of lawsuit. Really, an opinion that eviscerated him called uh, Giuliani's arguments that he made in favor of the president uh, that they should null and void the entire Pennsylvania election <laughs> as unprecedented. Um, and as you said, we're seeing across the country lawsuit after lawsuit that the president has filed either failing or they withdrew them. I mean, yeah. in Michigan this week, withdrew a, a suit there, tried to say that it was because they had got what they wanted. That was not the case. And so I think that we're just seeing this argument that there was some type of fraud really falling on its face. We saw Sunday morning Chris Christie, an ally of the president who helped the president prepare for the debate, saying that if the president had some type of evidence, he should present it in court, but really suggesting that there's just nothing there. Yeah, I mean, he called the whole legal team uh, a national embarrassment. And just on that front, I mean, Rudy Giuliani has been getting tons of play, melting hair, the whole thing. I mean... It's been quite a wild week with all of that. But the other thing that we're seeing, too, is uh, President Trump really fighting with a lot of the Republican governors from these states, you know, in Georgia and Ohio. You know, they're not backing his claims, obviously, that the that the election was stolen. And, and he's calling them out a, a bunch. And it's kind of almost this preview, I suspect, of what's going to come once President Trump leaves the office. You know, he's going to keep going on with all this stuff. 
Right, and you have to remember you talk about these Republican governors. I mean, there are places where Republicans did quite well down the ballot. They won state legislative seats. They won congressional seats. These governors don't want to avoid those results because Trump doesn't like the fact that he lost or he even cast doubt on those results. I mean, there's things where Republicans did quite well. And I think that that really gets to your point here, which is that governors, the party, someone like Chris Christie are starting to think in the long term. They're starting to think what comes next for the Republican Party? How do they recover from a loss like this? What are they going to do when Trump is no longer president? And Trump isn't thinking in those long term um, sort of party. He's thinking about himself. You know, my colleague Shannon Petty Peace had a great article this week sort of looking at what the end game is. What comes next for the president? And, and you know, what they found was that there are efforts to get him to start thinking about uh, what a post-presidency life looks like. You know, there's been lots of rumors that he wants a TV network, that he wants to run for president again, that he wants to stay in the limelight. I think that there's going to be a lot of discussion of that. And, and I think that we're going to see as he has to come to terms and accepting the fact that he's leaving the White House on January 20th, what he does next. Right. I mean, there's reports that were saying that He's really considering running again in 2024 and maybe making an announcement before the end of the year. I mean, that would be pretty crazy to set that up so early. Uh, but you're right. You know, there's all these other things, paid speeches, selling tickets to rallies, things like that. You know, he's going to try to probably return back to his businesses a little bit. But, you know, he wants to keep a grip on the Republican Party. And he's also going to be losing a lot of legal protections that he's had from being president. Also, I've, I've seen a lot of write ups about that, too. Right, and you'll also see uh, NBC News had an article, some several of my colleagues, about uh, how the Biden administration really doesn't want to be investigating him, doesn't want the Biden presidency to be sort of characterized by all of these investigations to Donald Trump. But that is not going to be able to stop everything. Some of these investigations have been done on a state level, has largely kept people at bay. But that's going to stop, as you said, whenever he leaves office, if they decide to continue to pursue those. Yeah, I think it's smart for the Biden administration to come in saying that, not waste time with it and just kind of move on as best as they can. And moving on to Joe Biden, this week there's reports that are saying he's going to announce some new, uh, some uh, cabinet picks, possibly Secretary of State, possibly Treasury Secretary. How is that going to play out? And then is Biden going to have a hard time getting these nominees confirmed once once they go through the process? Ron Klain, the incoming White House Chief of Staff, said that we can expect Biden to make some announcements maybe on Tuesday. Well, he wouldn't say which cabinet position. Biden has said he wants his cabinet to look like America, so a diverse slate with minorities, with women, with lots of different types of people from different parts of America. And so uh, we will see that. And you're right, we could see a bit of a fight. At this point, it looks like Republicans are going to control the Senate. There are still these two races in Georgia that will decide this. But that means that they have to get Mitch McConnell and some Republicans to sign off on all these nominees. And I think that we're going to see some negotiating and we might see a more moderate cabinet because of that. Not real firebrands from the left of the party that would not have gotten Mitch McConnell's approval. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's no reason to buy 100 rolls of toilet paper. There really isn't. And by the way, where do you even put 100 rolls of toilet paper? Joining us now is Mark Hay, contributor to The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems like it might be happening again. We're seeing coronavirus cases surge across the country. Different states and and cities are starting to think about lockdowns or restrictions on businesses again. And then what comes after that? 
you start seeing a little bit of panic buying again. And we're starting to see in some areas people making a run for the toilet paper again. We saw this at the height of the pandemic, uh, people just really panic buying all over the place, emptying out shelves, fighting over toilet paper. We're starting to see little uh, uh, trickles of that happening again, not the fighting necessarily, but just some empty shelves. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. Well, it's mostly on the West Coast right now, from what we can tell from local reports and social media accounts. But it's hardly isolated to the states that have put back in place the strictest lockdown measures. There have been isolated reports of shelves going bare over the weekend and towards the end of last week and into the start of this week, everywhere from Seattle to Waco, Texas. Even a couple of reports out of Omaha, Nebraska, possibly a city you wouldn't have expected. Suppliers and and stockers say that it's going to be different this time. They learned the lessons of the past, but this just kind of happens on people's whims, basically. That's exactly it. The stockists, the stores really have learned some good lessons from the spring. By all accounts, they are better prepared for runs this time. The problem is that runs on products are unpredictable. You can have a vague idea that they're going to happen again. You can have a response for them, but it's really an emergent social phenomena when they happen. It's just when a certain measure comes into place and how people react to it. You can't, as a store, totally predict that. However, it is reassuring to see how stores have reacted to this this time around, and it is reassuring to see that, unlike last time when we saw panic buying of just about everything, This time around, it's really mostly the paper products and some of the cleaning supplies. And that is because we're actually seeing, I guess, what you could call a more orderly panic than we saw last time. And even sometimes when stores put limits on buying certain supplies, that backfires on them, too. It creates this kind of fear that things are going to be running out soon. And they're saying that that's not necessarily the case. But you mentioned cleaning products. Some products like disinfectant wipes from Clorox those really haven't recovered fully from the first round of panic buying. Well, with a thing like toilet paper, you really only need so much of it. It's not as if being in a pandemic is radically going to change how much toilet paper you are using. It might change how much you're using at home versus if you went to the work toilet before. It's not a radical change in the overall demand for toilet paper. However, with the pandemic, we have seen just a radical change in the baseline demand for cleaning products. We need more of them now than we did last year. So with something like toilet paper, you know, the supply restabilizes after a while. We go back to a relatively normal level with something like cleaning products. That demand just stays high and they can ramp up production all they want. But if your demand exceeds the maximum level of production that they have, well, that's a harder thing for them to adjust to. But that has less to do necessarily with the runs than it has to do with just the realities of pandemic life and the realities of our new buying needs as consumers to stay safe. Yeah. And going back to how the suppliers say they're much more ready, they've been planning for this. They just didn't know when it was going to hit. So some of these stores that you spoke to as well, you know, saying, well, we kind of ran out for now, but it'll, we'll replenish our supply a lot quicker. They're not necessarily worried that we'll run into those same things again. A lot of stores have tried to stockpile things that they worry are going to run out quickly. Toilet paper is lightweight but bulky. It's harder to store in large quantities. 
So it's the kind of thing where you might not have a huge stockpile of it on hand to replace when there's a run. But these stores have gotten a lot better at building out their supply chain. So it's not as if in the past they might have had one or two people they sourced from and then it took a while for them to get information back and then to retool their supply shipments. Now they have a ton of people they can reach out to the next morning like that. They can restock those shelves. It might just be with brands of toilet paper you've never seen before. (laughs) In my Brooklyn neighborhood, we started getting things like Guatemalan toilet paper for a while. (laughs) You're just sort of retooling where things are coming from. And back in the spring, we were doing that on an ad hoc basis, just figuring out how to do that as we went and how to get the communication going. Now it's a little more established. And now these stores have the tools to, even if they can't stockpile this, even if they don't know when it's going to happen, to just say, okay, now we can draw on this source. Now we know where to go. Now we know how to get it here almost immediately. Mark Hay, contributor to the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then we found out he had a very low grade on it. So I just opened the test online to see what questions he missed. And I found several questions where he did answer the question correctly, but he was marked wrong because his answer that he typed in contained capital letters, where the way the teacher inputted into the answer key, it was lowercase. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. I wanted to check in on how everything is going with all this remote learning that's going on right now because of that pandemic. Julie, you actually wrote an article about how, in a lot of cases, bots are grading the schoolwork and, and quizzes for a lot of students in some of these online classrooms. And a lot of times they're actually getting it wrong. They're marking answers that are right incorrectly. And it has to do with very simple type of corrections. But either way, kids are coming home with lower grades, things like that. And then parents on the flip side have to contact teachers and try to get everything squared away. Julie, help us walk through some of what's happening. I only discovered this because my son, who's doing remote school, he studied really hard for a science exam. He expected to do well. I thought he would do well on it. And then we found out he had a very low grade on it. So I just opened the test online to see what questions he'd missed. And I found several questions where he did answer the question correctly, but he was marked wrong because his answer that he typed in contained capital letters where the way the teacher inputted into the answer key, it was lowercase. So there were several things like that that I discovered between him and my other kids when I went back to kind of look at what was going on here. And then I also queried a bunch of other parents to see if they were discovering similar issues, and they were. Yeah, it's like when you're entering a password for your email login or something, and it always says, don't forget, the password is case-sensitive. So you have to type in the exact uppercase and lowercase combination the right way. And that's exactly what was happening. You even had a few screenshots in your article about what was going on. And one of the questions was something about certain plants have special tissues that move sugar, water, and minerals between plant parts. And the answer is vascular plants. But when the teacher inputs the answer, you know, she had a capital V for vascular and then a lowercase p for plants. And if you put it, I think in the example here, both the V and the P were capitalized. And because of that, they got the answer wrong. So tell us about what online system that they were using there and a little bit more about how these answers are inputted. 
Yeah, and that was actually an example from my son's test. I took a screenshot of that. <laughs> um, and his teacher went back in once I told him and gave him the points for it. So he and my other kids are using, their school district is using a system called Canvas, which is pretty, one of the big online school platforms that a lot of districts and colleges are using. There's another educational software company called Otis that also has auto grading as a feature in the online classroom. So what they are doing is they are relying on these kind of auto grading systems, which were, I think, billed as a way to save teachers time. But what it's doing instead, in many cases, is requiring teachers to then go back manually through all of these tests for all of their students and make sure that they're getting credit for the answers that they do mark down correctly. I want to give one more example because these are very simplistic. I mean, if somebody was grading this manually, you can see where they would get it right. What happens when magnets come in contact with other magnets? So the incorrect answer that was put in there was they pull together or they repel. But the correct answer, as the teacher would have inputted it, was they attract or repel each other. So just these very little minor, minor differences are causing kids to get the answers wrong on these quizzes and other schoolwork like that. So what has been the response by teachers and the company as well? Because you spoke to representatives from Canvas. Canvas acknowledged that this is an issue. They said that they are aware of it. And that in fact, they frequently receive questions about this and you know complaints about it from teachers. And they're aware of it. They have a, a quiz system that kind of their older version of their quiz system that 75% of their customers are still using. And about 18 months ago, they began rolling out an upgraded quiz feature that will recognize answers when they are close enough to the answer that the teacher put in the quiz. So they are trying to make improvements overall to their online quizzing, but the majority of their of their customers are still using them, the older version where these mistakes are happening and part uh, if, of, the, if the exact match isn't made. And part of what they said, too, was that in the rush to do all the remote learning, teachers didn't have enough training also on how to do some of this. So they were also putting it on lack of training for teachers, too. Obviously, school districts last spring just were kind of caught off guard by the sudden switch. And while they did have more time over the summer to prepare for this fall, it was still a big learning curve, uh, I would imagine, for teachers to learn brand new systems. You know, these online grading, it's not just online grading, it's the whole platform of where you submit, where you post your assignments, where you have your Zoom links for the kids' classes. All of those things are kind of in one place. And that's a lot of stuff to learn how to navigate. So it could very well be that, you know, in many cases, teachers didn't have enough time to fully understand that this could be right. a problem. I mean, I know some teachers are aware of it. Others don't know about, you know, because it's, it's easy to miss. If your student has one or two answers wrong, um, you know, if the, most of the quiz is multiple choice and there's just a couple of write-in answers and they get those wrong, you know, so they get a B or maybe a C on a test. You may not think that's anything to worry about. But if enough of those kind of add up, the student might get a failing grade versus a passing grade or a C in a class instead of a B when they deserve that B or an A. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.